Welcome to the Symposium of the Lotus Eaters. Today we're joined by Bo, and we're going to talk about historical inevitability, and if there is such a thing or not, and whether we have reasons to believe in it or not. But it, it is a concept that plays a lot of role in people's minds nowadays, and very frequently history is something that is very difficult to get into, and uh, I think that one of the ways in which we feel a bit more productive and we feel that our awareness of history is increasing is by noticing patterns. But there's a very large question whether these patterns are patterns that are heuristic or patterns that are basically realities. Mm. And whenever we talk about the inevitability and necessity, I think we're making some metaphysical claims. So I think we should have a general conversation about what is history, um, what is its linked its link to understanding, how we can uh, view different views of explanation and how they create different views of history, and then talk a bit about the narrative of infinite progress and also the narrative of infinite decline. And uh, just, I want to hear a lot what you have to say about it and see where we are going to end up. So, what is so fascinating about history? Why do we read it? Gosh, well, that's a big question, isn't it? Some yeah. people hate it, don't they? Yeah. Lots of people say, oh, I hated doing history at school. Um, I knew a guy I used to work with, a South African guy once, who said he hated history. He'd see me reading some uh, history text at lunchtime or something, say, why are you doing that? Why are you wasting your time with that? That's got no relevance to our world, our life. I mean, he couldn't be more wrong, of course. Yeah. The present is a product of the past. You can only understand the present by having an appreciation of the past. Cicero said, didn't he, to, that yeah. to be ignorant of your past is to forever remain a child. Yeah. Something along those lines, obviously, in translation. Um, but yeah, so um, it's fascinating to me, but it isn't to everyone. Um, but I'm sort of endlessly fascinated by history. I said somewhere else on one of the other epochs that um, it has to be extremely boring bit of history before I sort of turn off. Um, so, um, but I, I think that um, there's nothing more interesting, really. Um, quite often, a lot of the time, history is more fantastic than fictional stories. Um, more wonderful, in a way. Um, but one thing I'd like to say about this conversation, what we're going to have, just to make it clear to begin with for people who might not know, is that there's history itself, i.e. the events. Um, and it's always a struggle to agree on what those events were, um, even really recent events, even very well documented events. The past is sort of profoundly lost to us. Every moment that passes into history is profoundly and forever lost. You can sort of immediately argue about what just happened, what we just saw, let alone things that are centuries or millennia ago. So there's history, there's the, the study of the events. And then there's historiography which is the study of how we look at those events yeah. or through what lenses are we looking at those events. And what I did at undergrad anyway, I did ancient history, not modern history. And that is very sort of historiography heavy. Um, you look at the ancient historians themselves as much as the actual history. Um, so that's a big part of if you get into historiography, if you get into just history deeply, you have to look at not just the events, but who's telling you about those events 
and what are their motivations and biases and all sorts of things and and as you say and then there's sort of another level where you can talk about patterns and uh, if there's an inevitability to things or you get it gets metaphysical really quickly is everything already predetermined are we just running through the motions or not um, you know are do great men of history matter all that much or is it m more um, just general trends just a march of history that sort of class and race and things uh, what determine everything not individual people and what they said and did I think what you said raises too many questions and uh, that's a good thing. So let's start with the, mo with the least important one. Okay. Because you, you mentioned that um, someone you knew in the past found history boring. I think that when people say this, they have in mind a particular kind of history writing that is too much focused on particular details. And people get, forget, they don't see why this is interesting. So for instance, if we just have a history book that tells us about, let's say, a, pati a particular, let's say, shop in the Middle Ages. Maybe some people would find that completely boring. And they say, okay, I don't care. I don't care how many beers they sold that day and how many beers they sold the other day. But what could be more interesting was to show how, for instance, the, the way I see it, show how this relates to a wider culture and show how, for instance, that sort of, let's say, establishment was affected by its culture around it and also how it could show us a glimpse of how people lived in the past. But when it shows us a glimpse, it seems to me that it is somehow appealing to some universal themes. We care about, for instance, how we would be if we lived in that era. This is one thing that I find particularly interesting. So. It seems to me that interest and lack of it have to do with the extent to which we find ourselves in something. Whether we think that it expresses us or we think that it gives us a glimpse of how we could be or how we would live if we lived in another era and another society mm. at a different uh, time and place or in our society at a different time. And also I think that this is something that it helps us understand ourselves better mm. somehow. Right, yeah, absolutely. I think that's what it's all about. Well, for me anyway. I want to yeah. understand the world I live in. I want to understand yes. people. I want to understand myself. So how and you can do that by reflecting yeah. on history. So let's be a bit more, let's say, detailed in how this happens. Because I, I agree with you. I think that uh, history helps us to understand ourselves better, other people better, our societies better. It helps us understand people. And it's also linked with a sort of memory. And uh, let me give an example. I've, I've, I think there is a movie called Memento with Guy mm, Pearce. I've seen that, yeah. He loses, his, uh, he loses his memory. Mm. And he is tattooing his body to remember events. Because it's, it is a form of historiography for him. Because he is trying to establish some events, the memory of some events, uh, knowing full well that he may forget them. So this enlargement, let's say this, and this, how should I put it? This focus on memory creates a sort of identity. 
And I think that history could be seen also as a form of establishing a sort of collective memory. Mm. Right. Yeah. Like the history of a family, or the history of a town, like Machiavelli was writing about the history of Florence. The history of a nation, like Hume was writing about the history of Britain. And also we could have also history that is transnational, that is talking about you know, humanity in general, or Europe, or Asia, or Africa. So how does it work? How do we see ourselves there? How do, is our understanding of ourselves increased by history? Well, yeah, I mean, one of the first things I'd say is that it's always going to be a narrative. It's not a perfect story by definition. As I say, there's, there's sort of, when you really drill down into it and you get into sort of the philosophy of history, you get, become sort of, as I say, sort of almost metaphysical quite quickly, um, you realise that there is no objective truth of the past. Yeah. And so, once you accept that, at least it's to various degrees you can agree on that, but if you accept that, then it's always going to be a narrative, it's always going to be a story, it's always going to be a construct. Okay. Not the actual thing. It'll always be yeah. a reconstructed thing. So now already you're into the weeds, yes. right? You're already into some difficulties right away. Yes. When you say that there is no objective uh, fact of the past, do you, want, do you mean that basically every fact about history or every event we are, that historians talk to us about is a, an event that we cannot be certain about it yeah. and that a lot of, let's say, limita a lot of their limitations create limitations for us. Hmm. Is, is yeah. that what you mean? Yeah. Well, especially, I, I want to understand what you yeah, mean. Yeah, especially if you're trying to build up, as you, you put it, like an identity. Yeah. I'm thinking of sort of the identity of nations, say, the history of Britain, yeah. let's say. Um, it's always going to be a constructed thing. Um, it's, not, it's not just like an objective truth. That you're talking about anymore. There's one anecdote I really like. It was of um, Sir Walter Riley. He was in the Tower of London at one point and he saw some sort of altercation, some event outside his window that he wanted to document and he wrote it down and then he asked the, the, the few different people, the handful of people that were actually involved in it and he asked them for their account and they were so divergent. He got such different accounts yeah. of people that took part in a very, very recent event that he said, I can't remember the exact line, but he said something like, uh, I, I despair for history. Yeah. Like all history must be some level of a confused nonsense if we can't just agree on what just happened. Okay. Now, I want to ask you about something you said about the construct before, because I want to understand what, what you mean, because um, there could be all sorts of interpretation of this claim. So when we, for instance, now, now talk hear about constructivism, we frequently have in mind something like relativism or subjectivism, where you say everything's a social construct and there's no reality, things like that. But there is another view that uh, says that when we saying that something is a construct, it means literally that it is written by humans, that they're fallible beings, which doesn't mean that there is no objectivity, but it could imply that, you know, there are limitations and playing of human beings playing into it. And we are talking about fallible human beings that, that could make mistake. But that doesn't mean that they're not talking about an objective domain of facts. So when you're saying that history is a construct, or 
I don't know if I'm paraphrasing or something. Do you have uh, one of these two notions well, of a construct in mind? Is it a third? Uh, what, yeah, what yeah, I mean, I'd probably, you could call it subjectivism or something like that. Okay. But I think that it's very difficult, if maybe impossible, to arrive at an objective truth about the present. Yes. Right? Yes, yes. <laughs> we can't really, and we're taking it to the nth degree here, but we can't really agree that we're both experiencing the same thing in the present. Yes. So it's, it's an impossibility to do it for the past, which, as I say, every moment that goes by is profoundly lost. You can never go back and revisit it. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, we are taking this to the nth degree. You can also, yeah. though, of course, agree on what you think is going on in the present or in the past or has happened in the past. You can also sort of agree. Um, I can't remember who the quote is. I probably should know exactly who the quote's from, but... It's that history is a set of facts agreed upon. Okay. That's one way of looking at it. I think that's a fairly helpful way of sort of thinking about history. It's just a set of events that most people have agreed was the most likely thing that happened. Yeah. Okay. No, I, I see. I, th I think I see what you mean. One question here is the question of disagreement about the present, because disagreement is pervasive about more, almost everything. Especially if you read some philosophy, you'll see that philosophers even trying to find a way to disagree even about the obvious. Mm -hmm. But you're entirely correct that we don't even agree about the present. And I think that if we look at why we disagree about things, we will see that we view things from a sort of limited perspective. We do not have a God's eye view of the universe. <laughs> and we are also fallible beings. We're not infallible. So... There comes a question as to what sort of intellectual traits we need to have if we are honest about, about ourselves and our limitations and about our pursuit of history. Because there are all sorts of motivations why people read history and they appeal to history. Some of them, they want to say, okay, I really want to understand. As we said before, I want to understand myself. I want to understand my society. I want to understand my family or my parents. And the kind of society they grew up in, the kind of values they had, and that the, by implication, the kind of values that affected my upbringing. Or also, you could, you could say, I want to read history because I want to see where the future will take us or make an informed judgment about what is probably the case, what mm. will probably occur. But there are also people who read history and appeal to history for more nefarious purposes. Mm. Mm. And uh, even if they have, uh, let's say, uh, a good reading of history, they may apply it selectively. And they may, let's say, talk about some events while withholding others. They may, in purpose, put forward a very selective view of history. So I think we should ponder a bit on our fallibility because there are historians, it seems to me, and this isn't just uh, historians who do so, it's people in general who really don't like thinking that they are infallible, <laughs> that they are fallible. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I think that this creates a lot of problems. Yeah. So what, are, what is the importance of understanding of fallibility for reading history and how does this increases our, let's say, understanding of the historical process? How, do, how does our understanding of our fallibility help us understand, let's say, different historians? 
That's an interesting question, interesting thing to think about. Well, I would say, I think, that the pursuit of sort of infallibility is obviously doomed, Yeah, it seems to me. Um, I mean, you've, perhaps in science it's a bit different, like a mathematical proof. I'm no mathematician, but I understand. <laughs> you can have a mathematical proof of things. And you can say to an extreme level of certainty, if not absolute certainty, that something is or isn't the case in maths and maybe physics and things. Yeah. Um, but when it comes to history, you, you can't do that. It's not possible to do that. But people have tried. Yes. Haven't they? Absolutely tried. They tried to reduce history to a science. Um, and, uh, well, in my opinion, and most people, if you're honest, you can see fairly quickly, fairly easily, that that's sort of an impossibility. Um, so that's what I would say. And I also i have said a number of times that I'm sort of a, quite a fan of Socrates, Socratic thought, uh, and the idea of uh, being cognizant, being aware of the limits of your own knowledge and, um, you know, be a little bit humble. Um, don't think that you're infallible. Yes. And, uh, and don't really even strive for it exactly because that way lies madness or something. That way you will be frustrated, frustrated and fail. And those that think they've got there are, um, uh, well, they've, they've built an edifice in their own mind on a, on a foundations of sand. Yeah. Uh, I think. Exactly. I think we'll, we'll get there uh, in a bit because uh, what I think is really important is to remember our own fallibility and also to be aware of our own ignorance. Right. And there are many things that we do not know and it's very healthy if we, if we accept to ourselves, I don't know about this. I've got a little anecdote. Once yeah. when I was younger, um, I would quite go around friends' house and things and uh, watch uh, the History Channel back when it used to be good. Yeah. Whenever it was up to me to change the channel, I'd nearly always put it on the History Channel and watch yeah. World War II documentaries and things. And I remember one of my friends saying to me once, why, do you, why are you constantly watching history things? You can't know everything. Yeah. <laughs> now, to me, that's so stupid that it's comical. Um, because of course you can't know everything. Of course, you've, obviously. But the idea in his mind was that to even try is is silly or pointless yeah. or something. Well, I don't think so. Of course, I don't. I, I'm not one of those people that thinks there's anything wrong with knowledge. You can't have too much knowledge. You can't be overeducated. There's no such thing. Um, but to abandon the attempt to accrue knowledge. Uh, is uh, well, you, you're a child. Then it's like you will remain that, a child. It's like saying that just because we're not going to live forever, why bother living? Exactly. Yes. Yeah, you can't eat all the food in the world, so why bother eating anything ever? I mean, yeah, it's, yes. It's, it's I think there is a sort of laziness there. Oh yeah, of course. Oh, it's absolutely born out of laziness. Yes, but yeah. the question is though whether this kind of la there are layers of laziness, <laughs> and whether thinking that we're infallible is a form of laziness and whether because it basically tells us that there is no improvement that we're capable of there's no reason for improvement in the first place we know already everything mm -hmm. we view things from god's eye perspective 
And that's completely wrong. And it seems to me that these people, if they are going to talk about history every now and then, they will be completely uncritical and um, non-cognizant of the fact that, you know, the things you're reading were written by people. And we have very few accounts of history, especially the, the further back we go. And this means that, you know, all we have is fragments and, and texts. But these things, not, not only, but this is uh, a lot of it. We also have, obviously, you know, we have uh, fossils. Archaeology. We have archaeology, we have, yeah. we have uh, objects, yes. But what I wanted to say specifically about accounts of events and historiography was that we have the problem of interpretation. That when we have texts, they frequently can be interpreted in all sorts of ways. And this has to do with, this isn't immediately obvious to someone who hasn't pondered on it, but it's good if we think of understanding. So let's say you, we open a book and we read the first sentence. We don't have enough to understand what is going on. In order to understand, so in order to gain an understanding of the sentence or a better understanding of the sentence, we have to read a bit more. We have to situate it in a paragraph. And then that paragraph in a, in a chapter, that chapter in a book, that book possibly in a, in a series of books. And especially with history, we have a lot of different people who give accounts of different things. So we have this problem to, to the nth degree, as you said. Mm. It's re so it's really important to constantly bear in mind that we are fallible and also that people who wrote history were fallible as well. Mm. And not only fallible, but some of them, they had uh, specific, specific motivations to write accounts in a particular way that, for instance, served their own interest, whether that took the form of let's say, serving a particular regime or, or not. Or any number of things. Yes. One of the first things you get taught, or I was at undergrads, about history is, who is the person that's saying this thing? Or, you know, who is it? Whether it's an ancient historian like Tacitus or someone, yeah. or if it's someone modern like Hugh Trevor Roper or someone, who are they? What's their life? What's their motivation? What did what did they say about other things? What were their politics? All sorts of stuff. It, it gets it gets very murky very quickly. Yes, and it's where history is just obviously so much more of a humanities subject than a science. It's much more like English literature in the sense that it's textual analysis. Yes. it's like you're deconstructing a poem or something. Um, it's not just a science, um, and I think that well, there has been. Uh, for a few hundred years now, uh, an attempt to make history a science or a social science or something, and that it's possible to reduce it to um, to sort of yeah some sort of level of mathematical proof or something, and that you can extrapolate from that the future. Yes. So that's the key thing. One thing I'll quickly say about that is that, um, in my opinion, and I've seen lots of other people say this that historians, a good historian, um, are often some of the best people to make uh, futurists, people that predict the future, futurist. Yeah. Um, because if you have a very good understanding of the past, you're much more likely to be able to sort of peer into possible futures 
I think that's the case. Uh, one historian, I can't remember who it was now, I remember saying that, um, imagine it, you're sitting on the back of an open back lorry, looking out the back doors, or the back, the open back of a canvas covered, um, uh, like a troop carrier type vehicle. And as you're, as the, it's going along, you're looking backwards. Yeah. You can see the road and everything as it passes you by and goes and goes off into the distance. And now if you're careful, if you sort of watch that long enough, you can make predictions, you know, like if I see a, a, a sign that for, for a station, then probably the next thing that comes along will be a station, <laughs> yes. for example. Not always, but quite often and you'll see patterns. And those patterns won't always be, well, quite often won't work, but sometimes will. Yeah. And that's the best you can hope for, to be able to see into the future. Well, some historians, people like Karl Marx even, um, have said, no, we can we'll know with certainty. We know history well enough now, or I understand history perfectly enough to tell you what is going to happen in the future. Yes. Well, for me, they've overstepped the mark for a lot of people. Um, they've, they're, they're wrong in that. I think that uh, one of the best things to do in order to dispel the sort of, uh, or in order to counter the spell that these views of history have is to focus precisely on the methodology. Okay. Because okay. the whole point it boils down to is, especially when people make predictions about the future, why do you feel that certain about it? That's where the challenge lies to them. Because it's one thing to say, I am reading history, I'm observing people around me, I'm understanding myself, I'm understanding other people. I am equipped to make good, informed judgment about judgments about what is probably likely to happen. That's one thing. It's quite another thing to say, no, I'm absolutely certain that this will happen, mm. like you're a prophet. And especially when we're talking about large-scale events, not like I'm certain that I will die. I'm certain that, you know, the whole civilization is going to turn out this way. So for me, that this is one of the issues that lie, for instance, on they lie, that is wrong under the Marxist interpretation of history. And not only that, but it's, it seems to me that there is a claim to certainty that is unwarranted. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. That's the point, that it's one thing to say that you have read all of history and that you have, for instance, detected patterns and you think that something is very likely to happen and quite another to say that I am 100% certain that it will happen. And I think that one of the problems that come into this is that there's an insufficient appreciation of methodology, especially there's a, uh, an insufficient appreciation of David Hume's work, especially the formulation he gave to the problem of induction. And this is really important to bear in mind, especially when we're talking about large-scale physical events and social events, is that you may have observed the generalization over and over and over again. This doesn't give you the, let's say, warrant, the epistemic warrant, to say that it will happen again. Mm. 
Mm -hmm. And he gives a famous example, I'm going to give it again, uh, about white swans. He says, before the British went to Australia, uh, there was no black swan seen. They had not seen a black swan before. So he said that someone who, uh, who was in Britain would detect pattern, the pattern that all swans are white. Even if, he says, all the data that you are that you encounter confirm a generalization an empirical generalization this doesn't give you the warrant that this is always going to be the case mm. and this is a problem that many people in philosophy of science scientists of course say that induction is basically all we have when we're when we are examining the universe for instance almost all mm. we have mm. you could say that there are some other methods that have some rationalistic bits, but induction is indispensable. Mm. But there are different ways of thinking. That is why we hear people say, well, this is what our best theory entails, rather than this is absolutely the case and this is what happens. Because for instance, the observable universe is not the entirety of the universe. So mm. it's in the same way, in principle, in the same way that the British had never seen a, a black swan before they went to Australia, and that never that could never warrant the claim that therefore all swans are hmm. white. But the problem is that even if all swans were white, it could, would still be a problem, because it would be something that you have no data to to confirm it. So you could say it could be the case that all swans were white, but just from sense experience of swans, you could never say that, therefore, all swans, I'm dead certain mm. that all swans are white. Mm. Absolute, absolute yes. certainty. Right, yeah. yeah. To watch the full video, please become a premium member at lotuseaters.com.